I know that, uh, and if you've been watching the news, uh, you've heard perhaps that uh, Facebook is even getting tired of Facebook. And I, I don't know if you've heard about that in the news, that they're actually like limiting the Facebook feed. I guess the idea is that it's bad for you, which is a total surprise to most of us. Right? I mean, we never saw that coming. Uh, if you are on Facebook or, Inst- or Instagram, you've seen the pictures, right? Now, I'm going to talk about some of the pictures there. This is not in criticism of anyone who posts these kinds of pictures. That's not the point. Some of you do amazing things because you're amazing people. Others of us are not. If you're on Facebook or Instagram, you've seen the pictures of these dreamlike dinner parties, right? With the hanging lanterns, and you know that no one at that party has ever sinned, right? It's just so beautiful there. You're like, this is like what a party would have been like before the fall. You've seen those thematic kids' parties with the pirates. And in fact, it was one of the first ones I put up like thematic kid, kid parties. And, and if you do that, don't do it now because we're talking about other things, but you'll just see party idea after party of idea, beautiful, vibrant, colored pictures. You've seen the pictures of the whimsical nurseries, right? Where you know that no diaper would ever be welcomed in those kinds of rooms. The picture walls, right? The contemporary but tasteful picture walls of just those perfectly placed pictures, meals that look too good to eat, may not be real food, tastefully vintage outfits rather than just old clothes, and sometimes people posting their own pictures of their rock-hard abs. (laughs) Now, as you follow these Facebook feeds, Instagrams, uh, you might have different responses, right? Some of you, it's judgment. We're not going to talk about this again, but you look and you're like, look at those people wasting all that time and money. I don't know if it's judgment or jealousy. Some of you are inspired, right? You're inspired. You're like, you, you look at these ideas and you're like, I want to do that too. You're a creative person. And when you see cupcakes, you're like, I don't care if they look exactly like that, but my kid is going to have cupcakes around that, something in that ballpark. You're not intimidated by the challenge. You're not discouraged if you do fall short. But others of you have have fatigue. You're like, just what I need. More pressure. Now my kids are going to expect me to put on that same kind of party. My mac and cheese never looks like that. My picture wall doesn't look like that. I'm concerned that some of you feel fatigue as we wake our way way through these first couple chapters of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, we've learned that Epaphroditus, who was, and Paul calls him, the Philippians' messenger and minister to Paul's need, had traveled 40 to 50 days to get Philippians' support to Paul. After hearing from Epaphroditus, uh, Paul had some concerns for the church. See, the church that Paul and Timothy had planted 10 years prior had some stress fractures. They were struggling as they were facing persecution from without the church for their allegiance to Christ, but also from within the church, selfishness had begun to to take its toll. Now, the church in Philippi was basically a very healthy church, but weeds had sprouted, which had threatened to choke out that vitality. So in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he encourages them to keep doing what they had historically done. 
And he does so in a really a very winsome fashion. It's a very upbeat, encouraging letter. He encourages them regarding how well they've done in their past ministry. He tells them of his own love for them, of his confidence in how they've grown and how they will keep growing. He tells them how he prays for them. It's a very encouraging letter. But he also displays for them what I think we can call his life precision. His life precision. Paul lived a precise life. He displays for them his rejoicing. We saw that in verse 118 of what Paul rejoices. Now, Paul wrote this letter while in prison. So Philippians 118, we see his rejoicing. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. He had precise rejoicing. He had confidence. Verse 20 of chapter 1. That Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. What a bold statement. Christ will always be exalted in in my body. That was his confidence. We saw his purpose in verse 21 of chapter 1. For for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. We saw his choice in verses 24 and 25. That you know, if he had to choose between being with Christ in heaven and being here on earth doing ministry, he would stay on earth. Because it was good for the Philippians and for the other churches for him to do so. Now, as you look at that precise life, at his rejoicing and confidence, his purpose and his choice, perhaps at at this point, some people are feeling inspired. They're like, I want to be like Paul. And other people are feeling fatigued by Paul's inspired selfies. Right? And and they kind of are. it, It is inspired portrayal of who Paul is. I can imagine some of the Philippians feeling uncomfortable, and perhaps you feel uncomfortable. I don't look like that. But Paul doesn't let up. What he's modeled in that first chapter, he starts commanding in chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He talks about them having one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, he even raises the stakes further. It says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And here's where it gets really hard. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then, in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Be like Jesus. Like the be like Paul part was hard. And later he says that. But now he says, be like Christ. It's like having the food channel on all week before Thanksgiving, right? And then you get to Thanksgiving dinner and you're like, well, it tastes good. Hopefully, right? But, but you, know that, you know that some people make a really good turkey. It sets an impossibly high standard, and that's almost what he does here when he says, have the mind of Christ. Be like Jesus. See, he presents this very high standard, and then he tells them, get to work. In verse 11, or, or, or verse 12. So then, my beloved... Just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work hard at this. Measure up. It's going to take effort. And then, 
And there's good news here. For it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But the command there is you're going to have to work this out. You're going to have to work hard at this. Now, there's a lot there. And we're being called to a lot. Paul doesn't really let up, though. In verses 16 to 18 of chapter 2, he goes back to himself as an example. And he talks about, if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. I am happy to be spent for all of you. You guys be the sacrifice. You guys have the sacrificial living. I just want to be poured over on top of you. I just want to, to go out in flames with you. Like, what a, a dramatic picture of self-denial there. This is not out of pride. Paul isn't saying this stuff to get Facebook likes, get thumbs up. But it is about followers, right? It is about discipleship. He, this is not glum, though, in verse 18. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. This is where joy is in this kind of sacrificial being spent. Now, we see in verse uh, 19 of chapter 2 that Paul turns his attention to some practical matters. Okay? So, Epaphroditus, who the Philippians had sent to Paul, was, had returned to the Philippian church. And it was kind of a matter of confusion, maybe, and we have to speculate some. But Paul spends a lot of time explaining why he sent Epaphroditus back instead of Timothy, who it seems like they had been hoping for. To make matters worse, the Philippian church somehow in the midst of this had heard that Epaphroditus was really sick. So there was all kinds of questions there. And he could have answered those questions quickly. Epaphroditus has done a great job. He was really sick. He's doing better. I had to send him back. I'll send Timothy as soon as I could. But he doesn't. He spends half a chapter dealing with this to prevent any confusion. But I think he's doing more than we talked about that. He's giving them an example of what it looks like to have that same mind and to maintain the same love and to be united in spirit and intent to one purpose, to look out for others' interests instead of your own and to do nothing from selfishness. Epaphroditus and Timothy embody that. And so, and so they are examples to be followed. So now, as we've gone through these examples of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, we've asked ourselves questions, and these are hard questions. These are questions that, that, that leave me lacking. Sometimes they're inspiring, sometimes they're fatiguing. And probably who you are and the kind of person you are helps determine that. Some of you are optimistic, you're like, I'm going to do it. And others of you are like, oh, I fall so short. And you kind of maybe are incapacitated a little. So let's go through some of these questions. And you, you've got them on, on your notes there. I'm just going to read through them. We've asked questions like, is my soul refreshed when I hear my brothers and sisters in Christ are doing well? As we saw that, uh, uh, that attitude in Paul. Second question was, have I been seeking my own things or the things of Christ Jesus? Which that his commendation of Timothy in chapter 2 verse 21. We, talk, we saw also how Timothy is a slave for the gospel. He served in the gospel. And that word served is really the, the word for being a slave. Do I identify as a slave of the gospel was our third question. Our fourth question that we looked at last week was, could my brothers and sisters commend me how Paul commended Epaphroditus? With that kind of language of fellow worker and fellow soldier, my brother. So this morning we're going to ask ourselves two more questions. And I'm aware that You've all had different responses to these examples. 
Some of you have been convicted. Some of you have been inspired. Some of you have been hopeful, have made new commitments, have been prayerful and dependent. But like I said, some of you may feel fatigued. These are hard questions to ask. Maybe you've tried in the past. Maybe you're tired already. Maybe there seems like too much of a gap to even really start. You know, some people read Christian biographies and they're thrilled. And other people are exhausted by spiritual giants. And I know I felt that, that, that way going through seminary. You would read about these men who would pray for hours a day. You feel guilty, right? You read about these men who wrote shelves of books that you have to read. They're amazing. And you feel guilty. These people who knew Greek before they were 10 years old. And you feel guilty. Missionaries who risked everything. Pulled out their own teeth and you feel guilty. And that's not even, you know, the many students I went with who were much more mature and godly husbands and scholars and pastors, evangelists. Um, seeing Paul in this book, and I don't know if you, you're like, how does he just ooze this? He oozes, I want to ooze more of what he oozes. He just, he's so full of grace and joy. And so compassionate and so earnest and so zealous. I want that. So we're going to look at these two final questions, but then we're going to come back, and I don't want to leave us feeling fatigued, exhausted. So we're going to look at two truths after we look at these two questions to kind of refresh ourselves if you're feeling fatigued as we look at these really uh, dramatic examples. So let's get, get, get back in the text here to start off. Uh, Philippians 2.26 uh, oh, and I should read the text, and then we'll pray. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and start at verse 19. We'll go up to 30, and then I'll pray. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned about your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me or slave with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Let's pray. Father, as we read that, there's such commendable things that, 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 that Paul says. And we do desire for your glory that those kinds of commendable things would be said about us, Lord. And that's not so that we could be uh, honored, Lord. It's not so that we get people's respect, Lord. But it's just to bring glory to your Son. We want to, to be like him. We want to have the mind of Christ Jesus. We want to consider others more important than ourselves. We want to be obedient 
even to death if that's your call, Lord. We want to have that humility that Christ had. And so as we read this section, Lord, uh, Paul and Timothy and Paphrodites, they, they, they model that. So please, Father, as we look at this um, effort which is commendable, as these affections which are commendable, which are the overflow of union with Christ, the, the effect of the gospel in our lives, we pray that we'd be transformed. But I do pray that you protect from guilt and fatigue, Lord, um, or at least a guilt that, that ends in itself and doesn't run to you, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be wise in dealing with these powerful examples and, and how we too can be, uh, become like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul had switched his, his focus from Timothy and why he couldn't send Timothy right away. Remember, at this point, Paul is waiting trial before Nero. And so he didn't have a whole lot of freedom at that point. And he's like, I can't wait to come visit you guys. I need Timothy here. He's helping me here. I'm going to send Epaphroditus back to you. He says very commendable things about Epaphroditus in verse 25. We've mentioned those, uh, uh, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. But we learned that Timothy, I mean, that Epaphroditus, by the, and we don't know if it was by the time he got to Rome on that 40 to 50 day journey back from, I mean, from, from Philippi to Rome. We don't know if he got sick along the way. Maybe he got sick in Rome, uh, but he was very sick. So Paul's going to talk about why he's going to send Epaphroditus back. And remember, Epaphroditus is there with that letter, and uh, you know, they might be waiting for uh, some answers. Why are you here? Like, we were hoping for Timothy. Epaphroditus, we heard you were sick. How did you make this long journey? So Paul has to kind of explain some of that stuff. So we see he's going to give three reasons why uh, Paul sent him back, but these are all good things. Philippians 2.26, uh, he explains. He, he, so he's going to send him back. I thought it necessary to send to you, verse 26, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So the first reason here that we see really in both of these parts is that Epaphroditus loved the Philippians. He desired to be back, to be back with them, and that word is longing. He was longing for you. That word long is used in 1 Peter 2, 2, of how babies long for milk. It was used in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, of the longing we who are saved, who know the Lord Jesus Christ, groan for our new bodies, waiting earnestly for that time when we are going to be perfectly pleasing to the Lord. It's that kind of longing, a baby longing for milk, that, 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 that yearning we have for our new bodies to please Christ perfectly. Paul had already used this word in Philippians to describe his own longing for the Philippians. Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He longed for them with Jesus' own love for them. In 2 Timothy 1.4, Paul says the same thing to, to Timothy, that he longs to see him, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. So we really see that this is very a uh, normal part of Paul's ministry. He talks about how the Thessalonian church longed for him. Paul longed for Timothy. Paphroditus longed for the Philippian church like a baby longs for milk. That's why Paphroditus wanted to go back. He, 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 he longed for them. He loved them. But he was also, it says, distressed because he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. That word distressed or anxious or troubled. Why was he distressed that they heard he was sick? He knew that the Philippian church would be worried about him. 
I mean, here they send him to Rome on this huge journey to help Paul, and now he's sick. How bad is it? Right? Like he couldn't just text and say, that was a bad flu, but I'm feeling better now. Right? At this point, who knows how many days had passed and how much time it would take for, for any news to get back. So he was anxious. They know that I'm sick. I was here on a job. They know that I'm sick. I don't know if they know how bad it is. We're, we're going to find out he was nearly to the point of death. This word for, 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 for troubled is a strong word. It's used in Mark 14, 33. And it describes how Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and be, began to be very distressed and troubled. This is before his crucifixion, before suffering God's wrath in the place of sinners. Jesus was troubled. Epaphroditus was really concerned, really anxious for how the Philippian church would think about him being sick. And, and, and I don't think he's worried that they would think badly about him. But that it's kind of like how you, you can imagine a, a, a soldier who's at war. He gets injured. And he would never say, please tell my parents. Because he know how much his parents would worry if they found out. But what is he going to do as soon as he know his parents know? He's going to be anxious to get word to them as soon as he can. I'm all right, mom and dad, right? Because until the parents get that second word that everything's okay, they're just going to be worried sick. They're not going to know if he's, if he's alive or dead. So, so Epaphroditus is like, I miss them. They're worried about me. Someone's got to get there as quickly as possible. And, and, and it seems, put, putting that together, that, 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 that Epaphroditus was distracted. And not to the point of being useless, but his heart was elsewhere. He wasn't trying to intentionally get the flu so that he could go home sick. But his heart was there in Philippi. Now, Paul wants them to know he loves you and he can't wait to get back to you. But he also wants them to know he really was sick. What you heard about Epaphroditus is true, Philippians 2.27. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, just because Epaphroditus was healthy enough to make this long journey back, he had been sick to the point of death. It wasn't just an overinflated case of the man flu. He was really sick. It's interesting how Paul said that God's healing of Epaphroditus was God's mercy. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about, right? Because I think that sometimes we can get, get, get so, I don't know if the word stoic, but like, well, wouldn't it have been mercy to bring him to heaven? Right? So it's really interesting that Paul says that God had mercy on him. I don't know, it, it, just, it just adds, and this is, this is not the main point, but it does add an interesting um, reflection on life being a blessing given from the Lord. That death is part of the curse and living in a fallen world. That death is not a good thing, but a sad thing. Right? That Paul says, God had mercy on him. You're like, but wasn't, wouldn't mercy be just bringing him up to heaven? Like, like he was almost there. No. And I think that that's just a good reminder that, 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 that living in a sin-cursed world 
is hard. And he says, God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also upon me so that I would have not sorrow upon sorrow. Now that mercy could have been that God just spared him having to go through the horrible experience of death. Right? And death is a horrible experience. It could also be that God had mercy on him by giving him more life, which meant more ministry. Now, I do appreciate here how Paul says that God had uh, mercy not only on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. We don't know what the first sorrow was that Paul already had. It, it, it could have been concerned for one of the churches. It could have been the fact that there was Christians, actually he calls them brothers, there in Rome trying to cause Paul heartache by preaching the gospel, which must have been a very weird place to, 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 to be in, to be so disliked by your brothers in Christ that they're making life harder for you by preaching the gospel. Maybe that's a sorrow. But he says that God had mercy on him so that he didn't have sorrow upon sorrow, which meant that the death of Epaphroditus would have been what? Sorrow. And again, I think that that's good for us to deal with. It's not the main point of the passage here, but it's good for us to remember the death of even a Christian is sorrow, right? It's sad. This is part of living in a fallen world. And I think that we have to be careful in our responses to one another that we just don't make it so happy that they're in heaven. It, it is amazingly true. But what does Paul say? If Epaphroditus dying would have been sorrow to me. So that's good. It's good to remind ourselves the death of one who's in Christ is a... It, is wonderful, but it's also mercy not to die. And it's also, we don't grieve like the world grieves, but there's sorrow there. I just think that that's kind of neat insight into Paul's heart. And really, it's going to tie into what our question is going to be, the extent of this affection here. But we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. Philippians 2.28 says, Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when, now that's not eagerly like I'm eager to get rid of him, but just and, and he gives his second and third reason why he sent him. Therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. But see, Paul is willing to sacrifice his helper while Paul's in prison. The Philippians have said, here's a gift. Here's Epaphroditus. He's valuable to you. We want him to help you in your ministry. And Paul's like, you know, it's actually going to be more for your joy if I send him back to you. So I'm going to do what's good for you. And he says, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. It's for your joy. I'm concerned about your joy. So I'm sending him back to you. Maybe that was just to relieve some of the worry that perhaps he was sick, perhaps he had died. He wants the Philippians to be happy. But he also says, and, and I, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned. And concerned is, is, is a fine way to, 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 to translate that, a little weak maybe. It's less anxious. Paul was, was, was anxious, and it doesn't say exactly what, but I think it's probably for the Philippians. He was anxious that they were there concerned and worried about Epaphroditus being sick. But it could have been that Paul was anxious about the, the disunity that was there at Philippi too. And we're going to see in chapter 3 that Paul's going to give some, some good reminders to the church. It could have been that Paul was concerned about false teaching beginning to, 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 to affect the church at Philippi. So maybe that's what he was anxious about. 
Philippians 2.29 talks about how they were to, to receive him, how they were to welcome him. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Paul says to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord in a way that's fitting with your mutual relationship in Christ Jesus. You have been both adopted by God the Father. You are in Christ Jesus. You are brothers. So receive him as you would appropriately for someone who's in, who's in Christ Jesus. That you are indwelt by the same spirit. You are brothers in Christ. So welcome him. And I think that there's an implied here. Don't hold anything against him. It wasn't that his fault that he got sick. I know you wanted to, to, to see Timothy. I thought it best to send back Epaphroditus. Welcome him in the Lord in all joy. Don't hold back any affection to him. And this leads us to our fifth question. And we're going to look at just, we're going to survey all these words here. But am I emotionally invested in my brothers and sisters? Am I emotionally invested in my brothers and sisters in Christ? And I know that this is similar to our first question, and it's there on the notes, but I, but, but, but I believe it's worth circling back to because Paul circles back to this idea. Just look at the language that Paul uses in these verses. Verse 26 has the word longing. Epaphroditus longed for the Philippians. Verse 26, distressed. He was worried because someone else might be distracted or worried about him being sick. He was distressed. There was sorrow at the thought of a brother dying. There was joy. In verse 28, rejoice. The Philippians would rejoice at Epaphroditus' returning. That Paul would be less concerned. That, they, he, that Epaphroditus would be received with all joy. And those are weighty words, right? Longing, distressed, and anxious, and sorrow, and rejoicing. Those are emotionally invested words. These are words that suggest earnestness, intensity, ownership, gravity. Investment. And I think the opposite attitude of these words are words like forgetfulness, drifting, uncommitted, unattached, ambivalent, disregard. Now, I've never been to a horse race. I've never bet on a horse race. I'm not encouraging you to start doing that. But I I can imagine being at a horse race and picking one of the horses to win. Right? I can imagine that investment of saying, okay, I'm going to pick number six, whatever the funny horse name is. And I wish I knew some now, but I should have thought I'd do that. But anyways, but they're long, right? They're multiple word for some reason. Uh, and I can imagine cheering on that horse. But imagine even more investing some money in one of those horses. You put a bet on one of the horses, and all of a sudden, you're like really cheering, right? Now imagine if you owned one of those horses, How much more would you be cheering, right? Now, it's easy to imagine a lot of enthusiasm about a horse and some money. Epaphroditus, Paul, Philippi, all had a horse in the race for each other's joy, right? They they were invested in each other's joy. They were mutually committed to one another's joy. When the horse stumbled, they all took a deep breath. What's going to happen next? Is he going to be okay? Would that horse get back in the race? I don't know if a horse stumbles, they can still win, but I imagine it happens, right? Now, in the beginning of chapter 3, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at uh, Philippians 3.1 next week, 
We're going to see that our joy is to be in the Lord. But this letter has, has, has come to again and again that we have a mutual joy as well. That our joy should be tied to one another. He, Paul has been, been modeling that this affection is, is, is commendable. That the way that Timothy and Epaphroditus and even himself loved one another was, 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 was commendable. It was worth being emulated. So if you want the kind of buy-in that Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus had for the brothers in Philippi and the brothers in Rome, just begin by praying for your brothers and sisters. Just pray for your brothers and sisters. If you're in a care group, begin by praying for those people consistently. And then ask them what you can pray for them for. And then as you listen to what you can pray for them for, see how you can be a benefit to them. Maybe it's by sharing truth. Maybe it's by helping with a physical need. Romans 12.10, we've seen in our our care groups this year, says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's emotional investment. When someone's weeping, you weep. When someone's rejoicing, you rejoice. Be devoted in brotherly love. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Hitch your wagon to a star, right? And it's the idea of aspire for greatness. Well, hitch your joy to the joy of your brothers and sisters. Okay? Hitch your joy, hitch your emotions to their emotions. Pray for their joy, work for their joy, seek for their joy, strive after their joy, invest in it, bet on your brothers and sisters. When they stumble, we should gasp, right? When they stray, we should be anxious. When you don't see someone for a couple weeks, much less a couple months, we should be nervous. Reach out to them. But when they're seeking after their Lord, when they're going hard after him, when they're saying no to life-dominating sins, we cheer them, right? We say, go, brother, go! Right? That's, that's, that's an investment that we should have in one another. See, Sundays, when we come here, when we go to care group or, or Roots on Friday night, is about us being emotionally invested in one another. It's not just about what you get. It's about what your investment in them. Now, this is why Paul expected the Philippians to receive, to welcome Epaphroditus with all joy. He expected them to be anxious and to be sorrowful, to have their burden lifted, their smile reignited. Now, Paul says that he wants them to receive him with joy. He also says, hold men like him in high regard to honor him. We saw that in verse 29. Hold men like him in high, in high regard. So we, we want him to be welcome, but we also want you to honor him. Philippians 2.30 explains why. And, and really it's kind of describing about a, 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 a whole group of men. Men like him. Verse 30. Because he came close to the death, came close to death, for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now, we'll get to that phrase there, what was deficient in your service to me. It sounds kind of negative, and we'll talk about that. But first, let's, let's look at Epaphroditus. He nearly died for the work of Christ. It's the work that is given by Christ to his people. It was the work given to Paul and Epaphroditus and Timothy, to the churches in Philippi and Rome, to the believers in in Garden Grove and Placentia, 
Long Beach and Riverside. This is the work that God, that Christ has given to us, to believers in the Czech Republic and Southeast Asia. It's the work of making disciples. And in this case, just as here, it's behind-the-scenes work, too. It's, it's all that goes into making disciples. For them, and uh, I'm thankful for our finance team here, it includes getting money, right? This work of Christ included getting Epaphroditus to Timothy with the money, that, I mean to Paul, with the money that Paul needed on a 40 to 50 day journey to take care of Paul's needs. He was on a delivery, I mean he was on a money delivering journey. He was basically PayPal. Now, Epaphroditus delivered himself to Paul to do more of the work of Christ there. It says that he risked his life. Now, we know that he risked his life being sick. I mean, he, he was sick nearly to the point of death. Now, his purpose, it says, was to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now, deficient is kind of an, an, an unfortunate word. I, I, I think that the ESV says lacking, which is still a little negative. It has the idea that Paul's criticizing them somehow. Uh, guys, I'm like watching my clock, and your offering was deficient. You know, it was lacking this month. That's, that's, that's not the idea there. See, the Philippians had a good desire. They had collected the money for him, but now there's just distance, right? They, 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 they've done all the, the front-end work. But now it was just, just lacking for that effort to reach Paul. So it wasn't like it was deficient or lacking, like, like Paul wasn't pleased with it. It, it. It's just it had to be followed through on. And so Epaphroditus was really how the Philippians and their commitment and their willingness to serve Paul. He risked his life to, to, to make that happen. And it leads to question six, our last question that we're going to look at. Am I willing to take risks for the work of Christ? says that Epaphroditus, hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life. Am I willing to take risks for the work of Christ? Now, taking risks doesn't mean being reckless. Epaphroditus did what needed to be done. Paul needed this money. Traveling on the Ignatian way that stretched across Greece wasn't reckless, but there was risk there. There's risk from the elements. There's risk of bandits. There's risk, obviously, as we see here, of sickness. I imagine that he faced more risk when he went and visit Paul in Rome, waiting trial before Nero, right? He aligns himself as soon as he gets there with someone at least accused of being a criminal. I mean, there's potential Paul could have been killed. And so what does he do? He risks his life for 40 to 50 day journey and then says, and I'm with that guy. But that wasn't reckless. That's what needed to be done. And it says to do the work of Christ. Before ascending into heaven, Jesus assigned us work to do. There are those whom God has chosen who will hear the gospel and be saved. There are brothers and sisters who will be changed through your ministry to them. There is work for us to do. But there is risk, right? There's risk in proclaiming what God says about sin, what sin actually is, about guilt, 
about eternal punishment, there, there's, there's risk with that. There's risk in exalting Christ as king, as the only way to be made right with God through faith in him? And are you willing to take a risk? Are you willing to risk disfavor of speaking the gospel to your family members who don't know the Lord? Are you willing to to risk disfavor by refusing to do certain things at work or when with your friends going against your conscience? You know, there's risk in parenting, too. Are you willing to risk your children being unhappy with you because you're holding them to a standard of obedience? Are you willing to risk a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ as you humbly go to them and express concern for them? Or maybe as you need to confront sin you see that they haven't repented of. Maybe it's risk of comfort and freedom by going on a short-term team? Are you willing to risk finances in order to help a missionary? Are you willing to risk awkwardness by talking to someone you don't know? Right? It's not a huge risk, but there's risk there. It's uncomfortable sometimes. Conversations don't always go well. After a while, you just kind of wander away from one another. There, there's, are you willing to risk by serving in the ministry, even if you don't know what your giftedness is? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to try serving in roots. I'm willing to try to serve in, 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 in rock ministry or pebbles. I don't, I don't know if I'm really going to be good at it, but I'm willing to try. Are you willing to risk the stability of your family by pursuing full-time ministry? We're not talking about being reckless But we are talking about risking our lives to complete the work of Christ. See, what's awesome about this work is that it is an unstoppable work. Jesus says, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. It is an unstoppable work. There's no real risk in this, right? You're guaranteed a return on your investment. This is a fantastic risk to take. I think it has to begin, though, to say, am I committed to the work of Christ? And that's what these questions kind of keep coming back to. We see just such earnestness there and such zeal and such total commitment. Am am, am I committed to the work of Christ? Is the work of Christ my work? It goes back to, am I a slave for the gospel? Have I said yes to the commission that Christ has given Following Christ has always included risk, in some places much more than others. There's a risk of comfort, of security, risk of relationships, and at times our own lives. Now, no one wants to host the birthday party, the one after the one that Martha Stewart hosts, right? Right? Now, I know Martha Stewart's kind of getting dated, right? But, you know, you still, you still see the pictures every once in a while. These immaculate, beautiful, whether, whatever, it's a wedding shower, whatever. No one wants to be the follow-up act, right? You're like, Ugh. Or next door to the recently renovated uh, home that HGTV did, right? Right? You know, the new home is just beautiful. And you're like, well, we live next door to that. Right? Nobody wants to do that. And maybe you feel like that a little bit after looking at these examples, after Epaphroditus and Paul and Timothy. Like, I don't want to be the follow-up act to that. I'm not going to measure up. And we've talked about this. They're hearing about their affection and their effort, their selfishness. I mean, their selfishness. Their selflessness. They were selfish, too. And sacrifice. Hearing about that leaves you feeling more fatigued than hopeful. 
and more exhausted than expectant. Maybe this is the kind of feeling you have now. You're like, this is why I got off of Facebook. This is why I gave up Instagram. This is why I avoid going to the gym <laughs> or the mall. I don't watch HGTV. I just see all these things that make me want to measure up. So I'm going to give up. See, but there's a difference between the cultural pressure you may feel on Instagram and the Christ-likeness exhibited by these men. You don't have to put on a pirate party. You don't ever have to renovate any home, any room in your house. You don't have to do those things. But we do have to be like Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says. And it says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then Paul just blows our minds away. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, we've seen Paul and his, what he says about himself, being poured out as a drink offering in the sacrifice of the saints. We've seen Timothy and his uniqueness and that he alone had a genuine concern for them and saw the things of Christ Jesus and not his own things. That he slayed for the gospel. We've seen about Epaphroditus, who was his fellow worker and fellow soldier who came close to death for the work of Christ. We see all these examples. These are, are, are people like us who've sought to put on the mind of Christ. They had the same spirit in them that you have in yourself if you are in Christ Jesus. So what are you going to do with these examples? If you feel fatigue, there's going to be true truths to remember. And they don't come specifically from this passage, but I think that they'll be refreshing to you. There's two truths to remember. And the first is, remember the goodness of God's commands. Remember the goodness of God's commands. When we are on social media, many of the achievements we see can, can be appealing. Right? But there's a much more complex question. Are they good? Right? Like, that's, that's tough to answer. I'm like, is it good for my food to look like that? Is it good for me to have a picture wall that looks so beautiful? I don't, I mean, it's fine, right? It's appealing, but is it good? See, God's commands are a display of his goodness. His commands are good. All these commands to live worthy of the gospel, to do nothing out of selfish ambition, to have the mind of Christ Jesus, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to do nothing with grumbling or disputing, yeah, to do everything without grumbling and disputing. Those are good commands. Psalm 119, 127 says, Therefore I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. God's commandments are lovable. They're valuable. Psalm 119, 131 says, I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. What is it in, in our hearts that will say, Oh, this example from, from Timothy, this example of Epaphroditus, that's hard, but I love it. Right? Oh, do you see how Paul was just spent? I love that example. This command to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? Yes, give me another command. Right? What's it going to take for our hearts to say, I pant for them. I want to be commanded by God what to do. It requires faith, right? You have to believe that God is good. 
See, the goodness of God is mirrored in the commands of God. Now, we know ministries of Timothy and Paul and Epaphrodite are going to be very different from our our ministries. We have different callings. We we, we have different giftedness. We have different responsibilities. The risks that we take are going to be different from their risks. I don't expect to be stoned and left outside of a city wall for dead. I don't expect that. We take different risks. But we serve the same God who gives the same commands. See, the problem isn't with the command, and it's not a problem with the examples. Both are the work of his spirit. Our problem, I think, begins when we forget that God gives only good commands. Do you want to know what a good command from God is? A command that could be no better. See, Luke 9.23 is a good command. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's a good command. That's not a shirking away. Now, we might feel that because of that remaining sin, sin nature that we have if you're in Christ Jesus. You might feel wanting to shirk away, but that's a good command. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19-20. This is a good command. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He seals it with a, see, it's good. I'm going to be with you. Right? This is a good command. This is not a bad command. These commands are just as good as Matthew eleven twenty eight 28-30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, those are all good commands. The command to die yourself is as good as the command to come to Jesus. They all are the overflow of God's goodness. So let me ask you, do you believe the commands of Philippians 2 and the examples we've seen in Philippians 1 and 2, that this is God's goodness to you? That you can't find a better goodness than the commands that are here? Like, like, that's what we believed when we came to Christ, right? When you were first saved, you're like, I can't go any other place. I believe that, that, that Jesus died for me. My only hope is him. Of course he's good. I'm going to run to him. Right? So if we're going to believe that, it's, it's just a continuation of that faith, that he's good. So Christian, do you believe that God's plan for gospel advancing effort and gospel-fueled affections is God's goodness to you. Do you believe that's his goodness? That the Great Commission, the work of Christ, is God's good commands. So we do need to remember the goodness of God's commands. If you're feeling fatigued, I think that there's going to be a faith problem there. Do I believe these commands are good? Right, And that, that's nice, and that's really like, like liberating, I think. Lots of what we see in social media has nothing to do with goodness. And we feel guilty about not matching up that kind of stuff. God's commands are good. There's also, remember the extent of God's grace. Remember the extent of God's grace. So remember the goodness of God's commands when you're feeling fatigued. And remember the extent of God's grace. God is not stingy. Right? He doesn't hold back goodness from us. He's gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. Now, it's possible that when you're on Instagram or Facebook or Pinterest, you may be able to follow a link to some instructions, right? This is how you too can be amazing. But it doesn't offer any real aid. 
People don't come to your house and teach you how to frost cupcakes. Chip and Joanna are not committed to you, right? There's no grace for you. Social media raises impossible standards but offers no real help. It will never absolve you of being average. Some of you aren't average. Many of us are. God is gracious. God is gracious. He has forgiving grace. He has transforming grace. Paul began his letter to the Philippians reminding them of God's grace. Philippians 1-2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What sweet good news. God has given us grace and that overflow of grace is that we can have peace with him. Because of what Christ has done. If you are in Christ Jesus, God loves you. He gave his son for you. The same grace that made you his child, that made you his son's follower, enables you to please him. That's an effective grace. It's an empowering grace, a transforming grace. It's freely given. So when you feel fatigue, and I know some of you are like totally not the kind of person, you're like totally inspired. Yeah, I'm going to go be like Epaphroditus. I'm going to go risk my life this week. That's good. Some of you are going to feel fatigued. I have to be like Epaphroditus this week. Remember the extent of God's grace. Remember the Lord's past grace to you. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves is the gift of God. Philippians 2, 1. I love this verse. This verse begins the section of the commands that he gives. Philippians 2, 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and it's not there, like, if there is, there's like, there's a ton. If there's encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there is consolation of love, since there's fellowship of the Spirit, since there's affection and compassion, since God has all these things for you, He has affection for you, and He has compassion for you, and He's given His Spirit in you to it cries out, Abba, Father. And you have the consolation of His love that He loves you, and an encouragement from Christ. What encouragement do we have of forgiveness? Forgiveness and newness of life. If you have those things, see, remember the Lord's past grace. What sweet things to be journaling about when you're fatigued. How has God been good to me in Christ Jesus? When you feel fatigue, remember the Lord's past grace, but remember the Lord's present grace. Philippians 2.13. We talked about this. Work out your salvation, but then he says in Philippians 2.13, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in you. Not God graciously, not God stingily working in you, God graciously working in you, right? You, 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 you have union with Christ Jesus, the King of the universe. He supplies through His Spirit the power you need to obey. This is good news. There's that past grace, there's that present grace, but there's also future grace in your life. Philippians 1.6, this is how Paul begins the letter. He knows it's going to get hard. He starts off by encouraging them in Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Right? No one on Instagram is going to say, your cupcakes are going to look just like mine. Right? I, I guarantee it, or whatever it is. Right? But Paul's confident that God who began a good work is going to bring it to completion. You are going to become like Christ Jesus. And Different roles, different gifts. You're going to become like Epaphroditus. You're going to become like Timothy. And you're going to become like Paul. With, with, with that effort and with that affection. Different gifts, different responsibilities. But that effort and the affection and the commitment. This is what Paul prayed for in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. 
And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And here it says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He has a sense, uh, you know, he's not a sense, he's praying, he's looking forward to it. When Christ comes back, they're going to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He looks towards what you're becoming. It's going to be beautiful. You're going to be like his son. That's what God's past grace, he's already given you. He's given you present grace. There's future grace to look forward to. So we know uh, there's, 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 there's no promises that we're ever going to do a great party, that we will transform our flab to rock-hard abs, or that your home will look anything better than the before pictures on HGTV, right? We may always have before picture homes. But because of God's grace to you, you can grow in your affections for God's people. And you can grow in your efforts for God's kingdom. You can be more pleasing to him as you obey him. Not the pleasing that satisfies him so that he doesn't punish you. That is totally accomplished in Christ Jesus. But it is possible to please him in our acts of obedience. We don't please him perfectly, but we can please him truly. You can have the mind of Christ Jesus as you do the work of Christ Jesus. That's the good news of God's grace. It's transforming, it's forgiving, and it'll complete what he began in us. I hope that's encouraging to you. As you're fatigued by this exam, don't stop looking at this chapter. Uh, I'm encouraged the, 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 the ladies in our care group are memorizing this chapter. It's a great chapter to start memorizing. Let those, let those examples and those commands make you feel uncomfortable so that you go and say, I need more grace. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we come before you, and we are um, really humbled, Lord. And there seems to be something that is natural um, in what Paul describes here about himself and Epaphroditus and Timothy, how, how, how there is... Uh, this working out their salvation with fear and trembling. There's this overflow of affection. There's this commitment to your work. Uh, it's really beautiful to see. And Lord, we, we remind ourselves that uh, they were sinners. And this is the work that you accomplished in their lives. We're not exalting them, Lord, but we are coming before you humbly, confessing that we um, want to be pleasing to you. And we want to have this kind of affection and this kind of effort, this kind of commitment to doing the work of Christ in the realms where you've placed us, Lord. As as I talked about last week, Lord, in the minivans where many of us spend a large percentage of our time, in the jobs that you've given us, in the neighborhoods where you've given us, in the church where you've placed us. Father, we want to be faithful to fulfill the commands that you've given us and to model and to be like, as Paul says later in this book, to be like him. Lord, we want to follow these examples, to have that mind of Christ Jesus. So Lord, we confess that we are unable to do this on our own. We confess, Lord, that we desperately need your son. So we thank you for how gracious you are. We thank you, Father, for your forgiving grace as we confess that we fall short. We thank you for your transforming grace. We thank you, Father, for your past grace to us in making us yours, Lord. We thank you, Father, for that ongoing grace, Lord, that, uh, uh, that it is constant that you are working in us to will and to act according to your good pleasure. 
And Lord, it's future, Lord. We know that you're going to bring to completion what you began. So please, Father, help us to be stimulating one another to love and good works. In Jesus' name, amen.